this idea that, well, the laws are the laws and they apply equally to everyone is just a racist lie that we have to stop telling ourselves. In this episode, let's start to unpack the difficult topic of racism. This is Campus on the Common, the podcast of bright ideas from Emerson College's School of Communication. Broadcasting from Boston, Massachusetts, I'm your host, Emerson College alumnus and professor of communication studies, Mark Brody. Today's guests from Emerson College are Cheryl Osley Jackson, a journalist in residence and certified diversity trainer. Heather May is a senior lecturer and chair of the faculty assembly. For the purposes of identifying perspective, Cheryl Osley Jackson is a biracial woman that identifies as black. Heather May identifies as a cisgender white woman. Cheryl Jackson and Heather May, welcome to Campus on the Common. Cheryl, you recently had an experience I was hoping you could share. Several white people showed up with semi-automatic weapons and shotguns and leaned against a fence at one of the Black Lives Matter protests. And what happened was pretty interesting because that community had been calling out over and over again about the looting and the violence and kind of ignoring the death of George Floyd. But when these people came out with their guns, the same people who were saying, you know, that people should be peaceful, like they were posting about Martin Luther King, that we should be peaceful as uh, we deal with what happened to George Floyd, those same people started posting, we have to protect our property. And it made me realize that in many people's eyes, Black lives are not as important as property because they are willing to accept violence. And so the message to me was, when there is injustice in the Black community, you should act like ML King and be peaceful, even though that he died by violence. But if we feel challenged as a white community, we may take force and you should accept that. I wonder if that falls into the yeah, but category. And what I mean by that is I've seen a variety of posts in social media with memes that would say, yeah, it's bad that somebody got killed, but this rioting's got to stop. Sort of placing the emphasis to your point more on the property versus the fact that somebody died because of racism. And I wonder, is this a prevalent attitude throughout the United States or is this an isolated incident somewhere in Indiana? I think it's a pretty prevalent feeling simply because it has become a meme. I saw a flip of that meme just the other day that said, instead of saying, yeah, this is bad, but the rioting and looting has to stop, to turn that around and say, yeah, rioting and looting is bad, but the killing has to stop. So I think the fact that we're able to sort of take in those messages and say, well, wait, this is, you know, something feels out of balance here, shows that it's definitely a prevalent attitude, and especially in white America, that's a prevalent attitude. There's some pockets who are starting to really kind of thoughtfully ruminate on what does that mean? But I think if you're looking at it, you know, even from a bit of a historical perspective, the idea that property is more important than people, that's the original colonizing okay. So that's um, really 
a very white, very colonizer attitude to say this property that's being damaged is somehow more important than the life of an actual human being. And that attitude is, is what enabled so many horrible historic crimes against Black people, against Native Americans to happen. I'm wondering, would this qualify as a form of institutional racism? Is this individual racism that's come together in a collective body, i.e. those white folks with guns next to a wall during a Black Lives Matter protest? What's the conflict behind the conflict? What's at the root of if this prevailing attitude? Any thoughts on that? I feel strongly that it is institutional. It is institutional in that it seems that there is a segment of our population that believe that people of color should stay in their place. And so it often felt like, as I'm dealing with people on social media, that the lecture to me was, yeah, you know, somebody died and the protesters should be cooperative and peaceful and blah, 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 instead of saying that the police officer should not have killed someone. I do not promote violence in any way. In my own life, I've had protests where I don't even leave litter. So I don't believe in violence on anyone. But again, when you initiate a violent act and really just sow to the wind and then reap the whirlwind that comes back as violence, you can't, as a culture, be indignant about that. So let's talk about violence, because we've seen violence with the police perpetrated onto specifically Black men, and actually Black women, if you consider what happened in Louisville. But when you look at violence from an institutional perspective, this isn't a recent phenomenon. This goes way, way back. And I would say, you know, to the original sin of slavery, but through Jim Crow, and it continues today. But why does this system of oppression continue to take place in what's supposed to be the best democracy in the world? Some of the reasons that I've been thinking about given recent events is that this idea, it's not new, as you said. And we, we know that policing started out with slave patrols because white America needed a way to control their property as they saw it. And so we had slave patrols. When slavery was outlawed, then we started with black codes where there were many, many laws about what blacks could do and where they could do it. And then we moved into Jim Crow. So we've always sort of incrementally pretended that we are lessening the violence against black bodies. But at every stage, white America has maintained this idea that we are allowed somehow to control Black people for our safety. And so that idea is inherently racist. And I think about where does that come from, this idea that we have to be protected, we have to have a, a militarized force to protect us from Black people. And Emerson, we're a film school, we're a media school, and we look at how media has perpetuated throughout from its very beginning this idea of 
black as bad, as violent, as something scary, and white as good. It's the, the black hat and the white hat, right? And that feels so subtle. But then we, we jump ahead to today and we look at, you know, just even shows like Law and Order, <laughs> you know, we, we look at movies. I was just watching a John Oliver clip last night and he was talking about like the lethal weapon movies, you know, and, and all of these things that many of us grew up with and that are still perpetuated today that say white people should be concerned with, worried about, scared of black people. When we're talking about how racism is like air to white people, it's all around us. We breathe it in. We can't help but breathe it in because it's just a part of the air. And when you get those messages over and over and over throughout your life, they become truth to you. It, it adds up. And I'll give you an example from one of the sports communications classes I've been involved with. They used an example of a Super Bowl between the Seattle Seahawks and New England Patriots. And they highlighted at first two athletes, Tom Brady and then Richard Sherman, a white commentator who came on to say, Tom Brady, industrious, intelligent. He's the general of the field. And then they went on to talk about Richard Sherman, an animal, a competitor, an absolute beast out on the field. Now it's interesting about the description of these two athletes, Tom Brady's industrious, whereas Sherman is an animal. Now, the reality is when you look at the background of these two, Sherman went to Stanford. Brady went to Michigan. Now, I'm from New England, so I'm probably a little biased towards Brady. But when you look at the two descriptions, you look at those two schools, in the business world, I would take a Stanford grad in a heartbeat over a Michigan grad. Sorry for all you folks from Michigan. No offense intended. But here's the point. It's the underscript. It's the white guy. Oh, he's the general. He's super intellectual. Whereas the black guy, well, he's a beast of a competitor. He's an animal out there. So it's another one of those subtle digs, if you will. You know, when we look at sports in general, we can take a look at kneeling and what Colin Kaepernick offered to our country. Now, I had the benefit of talking to Boyer, who actually came to Emerson College. He was the Green Beret who played for the Seahawks, who talked to Kaepernick and said, it's probably better that you take a knee versus sitting on the bench. Now, let's think about this. This is a U.S. Army Special Forces Green Beret, a guy who served multiple tours, a combat vet had the idea and passed that on to Kaepernick, who then acted on that and took a knee. When this thing started, a lot of white folks said, oh, this is disrespectful to the flag. And I'm wondering if this is a form of white fragility and perhaps white privilege. Instead of facing the issue, which has always been police brutality, that was replaced with a different narrative, which is, oh, no, it's not police brutality. This is disrespect to the flag. Is this another example of white fragility? I think it is white fragility, but it's also so misunderstood. Actually, if someone had paid attention to the silent kneeling of Kaepernick, we probably would have had some progress in police reform today. But instead, here we are, you know, protesting in the streets all over the nation and the world. Now, you know, when you use sports references, I'm reminded of a situation where when Philadelphia won the Super Bowl, the fans in the streets, nearly all white by video accounts, tore down the streetlights, flipped cars, set them on fire. They stood on a, an exclusive hotel's awning and jumped off of it until it broke down. I didn't see any tear gas, rubber bullets, even a police presence. In fact, 
when the media came to them, they were all kind of laughing. Ha, 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 they've torn up this city. They're so happy to have their first Super Bowl. And then we see the live shots. They're burning cars in the streets, flipping them, tearing down light poles. Most of the people, probably college kids. And then they did the exact same thing in Minneapolis. And it has, the, you know, we come with like, what kind of animals are these? That they can do these kinds of things in the streets. And so that is an example of white privilege where you aren't gonna probably get rubber bulleted for tearing up the campus. When I was at Indiana University and we won a basketball championship, they were flipping cars and you know, tearing up the water fountain and a bunch of other things like that. You know, that campus at that time was probably less than 5% black. So it was probably mostly white people. But it is, it is a thing you know, that people believe that black people are accountable for every act of another black person. And so we all understand that. Even as a news reporter in the newsroom, some heinous crime comes in and my friends and I agree, we're thinking to ourselves, please don't let that be a person of color because we know it then re reflects on the entire community. That's what's happening with the looters, right? There's millions of protesters in the street that are peaceful and there are a small percentage of looters and people are so focused on the looting that they can't even get to the message. A person on my social media said, Cheryl, can you explain to me why people are looting? And I was like, no, I'm, I'm not a looter. I can't explain it. And as a white person, can you explain to me why some cops are murderers? Well, that's a ridiculous question, right? It's a ridiculous question that someone, a white person who is not related at all to the police officer who killed George Floyd should know the answer to that. But for me, I should know the answer like we had some kind of black people meeting and made some decisions. Well, you know, you bring up an interesting point about white people asking questions and having an expectation that others would have an answer. And I've been told that that's also a form of privilege. And a part of it gets back to the, if you don't tell me how we're going to get better type of thing, and then expecting a person of color to explain it to you versus doing the hard work to go figure it out yourself. I remember attending the Inclusive Excellence Program at Emerson back when uh, Robert Emilio was one of the facilitators of it and having a conversation around this very thing. And a, a couple of white people in the room asking, you know, well, how am I supposed to know if, the if being, if black people don't tell me what the problem is. If they don't tell me how to be better, how can I be better? Number one, I think that's just, wow, you're really setting the expectations for yourself really low there that you can't educate yourself on these, these things on how to be better. But it goes back again for me to this abdication of labor, right? I shouldn't have to do this work. I have Black people to do it for me. And to me, one of the things that came out of that conversation was the fact that, and we, we talked about this at the very beginning, this is not new. There have been books and articles and documentaries. And I mean, we have so much information at our fingertips as white people to educate ourselves on these issues. And yet the best we can do is asking someone via social media, can you please explain this to me? To me, that is 
white fragility, yes. And it's also just intellectual laziness. And I think some of that is related to white fragility in that if I start looking into this, if I start thinking about it and educating myself, I have to go through some really uncomfortable feelings. I have to go through some really uncomfortable growth. And I don't want to do that. Who does? <laughs> Who wants to go there? Who wants to recognize that, gee, we're not all that special, that we've had certain advantages that people who don't look like me, and I say that I'm a white guy, we've had advantages. The system itself have bestowed upon us, and others haven't been able to appreciate that. I think it's a, a little bit of a careful walk, because there are some nuances of what impacts my life that you can't learn by reading a book or some kind of conference or anything like that. And so my white friends have been witnesses to the prejudice that is a nuance. They couldn't have learned about it in a book, but they were witnesses to. So, I mean, I do have, as someone who is a journalist, if I'm going to write about someone wearing hijab, that I might talk to someone to say, hey, take a look at this, make sure I didn't miss anything because I can't know everything. I do know that there are people of color who are saying, I'm not here to educate you about racism. I mean, I was a diversity newspaper columnist. It's not really my thing. I will tell you if you ask me the questions, I don't feel offended by them. And sometimes I think that it's a little bit of both. You know, you have to be educating yourself and then you can ask people questions. And I don't know what white people can do when people, when they're trying to speak up, but they say the wrong thing. And then people kind of, you know, give them a hard time about it. It might push people to stay out of the the conversation altogether. So I was actually talking to my daughter yesterday who's been protesting. I think she's protested 12 straight days in, in Los Angeles, she, she and my son. She was saying that someone made a quote about Black Lives Matter, uh, an organization that she's worked for, and she was saying this just isn't enough. And I said, Chaley, you have to consider where they came from. Give them a chance to have progress. This might be enough for right now. Everybody doesn't have to go to 10 right away. And I learned that by living, I mean, I'm half white, growing up in a mostly white family and watching my grandparents try to negotiate getting around saying racist things when they didn't mean them that way. And they had the best hearts of anyone I've ever known. So I do understand that it's a careful balance and that you do need to be educating yourself. And you can't ask me questions about all the black people in the world because I actually don't know. I'm wondering if it would make sense to work on some of the buzzwords that we keep throwing out. So we've talked about racism, institutional racism, white privilege and white fragility. I'm wondering if we could just start with what actually is racism? We have a definition that has become sort of mainstream and acceptable. And I believe it's even sort of the Merriam-Webster's dictionary definition, which gives it some sort of um, weird credibility that Racism is a preference towards or a bias against someone or a group of another race. That definition to me really sort of opens itself up in terms of that's where you get white people yelling about reverse racism and things like that. As a white person, I find that use of the definition as a little obtuse we know that a part of that definition goes further into being able to prefer a race 
in ways that are advantageous throughout society or to have bias against a race in a way that is oppressive to an entire race. Mark, you were talking earlier about the difference or the nuance between individual racism and institutionalized racism. And in the United States, really, whenever we're talking about racism, we have to acknowledge that it has become a systemic way in which we constantly see preference being given to people who are white and biased and oppression against people who are black, brown, indigenous individuals. I agree that the definition is missing that action word of active discrimination, antagonizing, biasing. Yeah, it's missing that. And so I think that the prejudice discrimination and mistreatment of people because of their race is racism. There's an aspect of power that's, that's missing from that dictionary definition. Dr. Robin D'Angelo offers an explanation that I'll, I'll try to do justice to. And I really liked her description here when she talked about racism in general. It's not an individual, it's a system, but there are certain elements here. If you were to accuse somebody of being a racist, it's typically because Racists are looked at people who consciously go out of their way to make the life of someone who's not of that race miserable. There's a few key words here. There's, there's the individual, the individual going out of their way to have a conscious bias against somebody. So what we're talking about and what D'Angelo talks about is the individual consciousness and intent. If that is the mainstream understanding of what a racist is, if, if I were to say you're a racist, you would feel that your moral character has been attacked and you'd, you'd have to defend your stance versus looking at the elements that are behind this and the socialization that takes place for mainstream society, meaning Caucasian folks like me, and the institutions behind that. If we don't look at the past, we'll never understand where we are in the present. So when we look at institutional racism, I could just see my students saying, what? I mean, if you look at the laws, the laws are all the same, right? Well, they are sort of today, but you know, how long ago was 1964 in the Civil Rights Act? How long ago was, was Brown versus Board of Education where several but equal? How long ago was it, and it was back in the 1800s, Plessy versus Ferguson that set up institutional racism through Jim Crow? So what's interesting here is if you were to ask my grandparents and my grandparents' grandparents, what was their experience? It's like to be a, a white man back at the turn of the 19th century. And those stories from that experience get passed on generationally. So I can look back and I can trace my relatives way, way back, probably to the Mayflower. I can tell you that my great-grandfather was a farmer in Marshfield, Massachusetts. So that's my cultural background. If I talk to my wife, she can pretty much do the same. If I talk to many of my white neighbors, they can do the same. But when I talk to my African-American neighbors, when they hear stories from their grandparents, are they hearing the same types of stories? Generally not. They're hearing stories about oppression. Why can't we get our act together in terms of race in this country? Well, I do think that individuals are driving institutional racism. But the thing about it is I, I, was, I wrote a diversity column for a decade. I've been in diversity work all my life. And I used to believe that diversity work really changed people's lives, um, changed their minds. I think you have a few people with open hearts that are willing to hear it. But I think 
um, in the 80s and 90s, it was politically correct to say that you embraced diversity, that you couldn't work anywhere where if you were a person that openly discriminated. It was politically correct. And what I think happened, and it's just my opinion, I'm disappointed about it, but I don't know that my years of diversity training changed too many people at all. But what it did was it let people know that you have to act a certain way. Maybe this cat's out of the bag right now where, you know, there's this open, in your face, violent racism. And maybe we don't change people's hearts. We're all friendly, you know, and it's kumbaya. What maybe happens is, what I say to you then is, you have to act a certain way. And I'll accept that your heart's not changed. You know, we don't have to be friends. Recently, a, an attorney, a, a woman in her 60s, spit in the face of a black teenager at a rally, at protests. And you have to ask yourself, what made this woman, who's clearly educated, clearly has an understanding of systems and how they're supposed to work, thought that she had the right to spit in the face of a, of a Black person and have no consequence? You could just be living your life as a Black person, and it will just slap you suddenly in the face. You know, I mean, I was on vacation in Hilton Head, South Carolina, and I came out of my condo, and another woman came out of her condo at the same time, and she said, hey, could you get me some more sheets and towels? And I was like, <laughs> I'm on vacation, you know? I'm actually here on vacation. And um, another time when I was uh, in the South, uh, there was an elderly lady who of course was probably born and raised there in line in front of me at like a Target or a Walmart. And she told the, the cashier who was probably in her 20s, she said, and the, the cashier was white, she said, honey, I don't think I can afford this item. I'm not gonna get it. She goes, you take it back then. And this is a woman, an elderly woman. And she, she said, you take it back and put it where it went. And I just kind of took the item out of her hand and I put it down and I said, she's not taking it back. Bring her up, you know, she's not taking her back, taking it back. But if you've lived in the oppression in the South in certain areas, especially at a woman at this age who may have witnessed lynchings or uh, public beatings of black people, it was easier for her with her kind of scooting along to go back into this big store and return the item. So you can just be living your life thinking things are fine and somebody just hits you with something that lets you know. I mean, I was in Louisville recently where someone asked me to start them a dressing room and I'm like, I'm also shopping. I don't understand why they thought I worked for them, but they did. And I think a key thing that, that I see here is Cheryl, unfortunately, had three stories that she could tell us in rapid succession without having to give it much thought about racist things that have happened. And I can say quickly and comfortably that none of those things have ever happened to me. I think this idea around kind of why haven't things changed? I agree wholeheartedly, Cheryl. There was this time where we had all been through our diversity trainings and we all knew how we were supposed to act. Our current administration, through its rhetoric, has let a lot of people know that those expectations are not there anymore. And so that, I think, in part is why uh, we're seeing, again, a bubbling to the surface of this behavior and our reactions against it. But one thing, and Mark, you stated, if I say you're racist, then it's, it's an attack on your moral character. I think this is one of the things that we kind of get wrong all the time. If somebody tells me that I did something racist, as a white person, if I want things to get better, 
I have to be able to say, okay, that doesn't necessarily make me a horrible, bad person. It means that there's something that I have internalized that I need to think about, I need to examine, and I need to change. If I can do that, my moral character gets to remain intact, right? <laughs> if I don't do that, if I just say, I'm not racist, you're being too sensitive, right? Then my moral character is in question. I hear it all the time in these conversations with other white people that I'm not a bad person. I can't be racist. I'm not a bad person. You're not, but you grew up in an extremely racist country with extremely racist institutions that have been put into place to maintain that power and balance. And so one of the things that really, I guess, sort of frightens me is that I could never ever say a racist thing. I could never do a racist thing. I could never personally enforce a racist policy of any kind. And the institutions around me will still make sure that I get privileged over people who are black or brown. The institutions will do it for me. And when we look at institutions, institutions, people will say, well, they make rules and rules are colorblind. So shouldn't the rules apply to everybody equally? The rules aren't colorblind. I mean, if, they're, if, they're, if you don't have a group of people that are diverse making those rules and considering what might offend me or what might prejudice a system against me. In Columbus, Indiana, I was the first diversity trainer in their school system. And we, we were addressing things not just about race, but also about the level of Columbus is a very middle-class community. And so there was a few, few people in poverty at that time. And the rules that they were trying to live by also came into question off just these, here are the rules. I don't care if you're homeless, you should have this thing signed by your parent every night. Well, you're homeless. You don't even know where your book bag is. So they aren't colorblind. They're not for everyone unless everyone, as many people as possible, are represented in creating those rules. And so it's honestly, sometimes you can't even know what you don't know. And mostly we're more comfortable just moving forward with what we already have. And people of color in communities like I grew up where it's still 99 point something, white and middle class, the black people in the community, we acclimated around the rules. You know, we figured out how to live around the rules. The rules weren't made for us. Now, I will be clear that when I was growing up in Columbus, there was a consciousness around racism and prejudice. And there was a group of leaders that cared about that. And so I benefited from that. But mostly, we know how to negotiate around the person who is concerned about us. You have your guard up a lot. And I think about this event that I went to, which was a multicultural event, where I'm at a table with women of all races, and we're having a tea, and we were learning about people from other cultures. And a woman from another country, she was from Poland, she was walking around showing the silver jewelry from her country, as other people were walking around showing things from their own country. And my white friend next to me, saw that every time that she came by, I leaned to look at the jewelry, but she kept moving. Eventually my friend says, hey, my friend would like to take a look at this. And she comes and she puts it under my face and she goes, we don't keep this at our home, so don't come looking for it. And I looked at the table and every person at the table's mouth was hanging wide open. And normally you have two responses to that. You can cry or you can get angry. 
I mean, those are the only things you can do. And since I kind of had my guard down because this was a multicultural event, I cried. And, and so did several of the women at the table. That's why I say that there are some nuances about racism that I can tell the stories every day. But if you're sitting there and you see that I did nothing to encourage that, it's a thing, I think it's an example of how black people, people of color are often considered as someone who has a chip on their shoulder when honestly they just don't know what's coming next. I'm wondering if this is yet another example of death by a thousand cuts. In the course of just a few moments, we've heard a number of situations, stories, examples from Cheryl's life where abject racism has been on display, whereas Heather, myself, or White, we don't have stories like that. One of the things I'm trying to do is become a better person and understand what's going on better in, the, in, in terms of race. But to Cheryl's point, I don't know what I don't know, but I know that I need to know. Sometimes I just don't know how to know it. So I'm going to make tons of mistakes, but at least I'm reading and I'm talking and I'm trying to learn. But having said that, I can never have the experience of a person of color because I'm a white person in the United States. I have white privilege. But a lot of people don't understand white privileges. I've had, I can't tell you, countless classes where I brought it up and there'll be the kid that will say, I'm the first person in my family to go to college. Both my folks work in factories. They struggle so I can be here. What type of privilege have I ever had? So to that student who asked me that question, how should I reply? None of those struggles that your parents went through were based on the color of their skin. Exactly. What I typically say back is where you live, is there something called driving while white? Or as we've seen over at some schools in Cambridge, police being called while a person of color was napping. Is napping while white? Is walking while white? There's all these elements where things that happen to other people of color don't seem to happen to white folks. When my wife walks into a, a jewelry store, she doesn't have comments from the person behind the counter saying, oh, that's very expensive. Or when my kids go into a store, security doesn't follow them around. You know, as a white person, I never noticed that stuff until it's called out by somebody else. And then if I really take the time, let's be honest, folks, who actually takes the time to look for these things? But if I were to, I'd notice that. Is this an example of white privilege? It is, it is. But you know, I think the main thing that, one of the main things white people can do is what I think they're doing in the streets protesting today, is to be a witness. If you are driving by and police are stopping a young black man or a young black woman or person of color and you, you can just be a witness. You can literally just stop. And as a journalist, I would say roll on it <laughs> and be a witness, right? It brings a lot to the table. You know, I talk about my own justice fight in my hometown the communities, the white community supports it, gives it, it gives it more value to some people. And some people don't see it if it's only with people of color. So I think one of the main things people, white people can do is be a witness. And then when you learn something, and Mark, I'll say, I don't know another white man who's worked as hard to understand racial issues and inequity and all those kinds of things as I have you. So I, I do appreciate that. But I do think that one of the things that white people can do is join however they can. I mean, everybody doesn't have to be in the streets protesting, but what can you do? And so in many cases, I'm my friend's only black friend, but they have seen the racism and have been very aggressive about standing with me and being a witness. Cheryl and Heather, with our remaining time, is there anything you'd like to impart to our audience? When we're talking about justice for black people and people of color, 
we're not talking about injustice for white people. So one is not, does not take away from the other. So when you're talking about justice for people of color, in turn, people who are also, white people who are also mistreated by police, uh, their police reforms would not be mistreated by police. So we're not talking like we are in a competition of some kind. I think that's one thing. Um, the other thing I think is there is the idea that people don't see color. While I understand its meaning and I understand its intent, I'm sure that my very close white friends don't say, first thing they do is see me as a black woman, but they have seen color because they've seen the discrimination. It doesn't help us because color is part of the story. Whether the cop was white or black matters, whether the person who died was white or black matters. When the clash happens, we are gonna report those things as a black person and a white person because that is a relevant part of the story, any story many times when you're talking about in America, how things play out differently. And uh, don't forget you have a preppy kid from a exclusive white school who's proven to have raped a girl and gets a few months in jail and probation out in you know, a few days. And then you have you know, a same age kid who's selling marijuana and might go to jail for years. And so we have to start looking at the inequities. And I think lastly, I, I hope that what's happening across America and the world will change things and move us forward. I, I, believe, I believe that things are going to change. I think a couple of things that I take away from this conversation, first of all, just the idea that white privilege exists, it is a thing, and as a white person, you can use it to help tear down the racist institutions in the United States through being a witness, as Cheryl was talking about. It's highly unlikely for me as a white woman, if I'm observing police and I'm recording them, the likelihood of them saying something to me or, or even approaching me is much less than a black person doing the same thing. So I, I know I have that privilege, use it. Use it to help be a part of the solution and not a part of the problem. I think that one of the other things that I'm taking away is the individual and the institutional racism are so closely intertwined that perhaps it's not even necessarily worth it to try to separate them. But simply to say this racism, whether it's being perpetuated by an individual or by an institution, has to be stopped. It has to be revisited. It has to be reformed. It has to be stopped. It doesn't matter if it's an individual, it doesn't matter if it's an institution. Both are extremely detrimental to us as a country. And I think that this idea of colorblindness, this idea that, well, the laws are the laws and they, you know, they apply equally to everyone is just a racist lie that we have to stop telling ourselves in America. They are not. Uh, and we've seen this repeated over and over again throughout history. And if people listening aren't sure of, of how 
it's been seen. I highly recommend The New Jim Crow, Michelle Alexander, and uh, The 13th on Netflix. Those are great ways to begin to see what it is that has been perpetuated and how we can start to really actively be anti-racist individuals as white people. Recently in Boston, an amazing woman, Monica Cannon Grant, who if you aren't following Monica Cannon Grant, you definitely should be. She is the founder of Violence in Boston, and they held a protest this past Tuesday. And it was just one of the most amazing, moving protests that I've ever seen. And I think part of that is because Monica just has such integrity to her commitment to anti-racism work. She is a, a Black woman and uh, she, you know, this is a matter of life and death to her and to her family. And one of the things that she said is that this, the protest was for Black people and that they always welcome their white accomplices. And I think as a white woman, that is my goal in life is to be an accomplice to anti-racism work. That is the best use of my time as I see it in trying to change the world that we find ourselves in right now. Thank you, Heather, for that. Thank you, Cheryl. You've been listening to Campus on the Common. We spoke with Cheryl Osley Jackson and Heather May. Cheryl Osley Jackson is a journalist in residence in Emerson College. She's also a certified diversity trainer. Prior to joining the academic world, Cheryl worked for CNN, CBS, and the Racing Towards Diversity magazine. Heather May is the chair of the faculty assembly at Emerson College. She also serves as a senior lecturer for public speaking. Currently, she's pursuing a doctorate in psychology. I'm your host, Mark Brody. Campus on the Common is a production of Emerson College School of Communication. Our executive producer is Lucas Poiser. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.